Welcome to the Grace College Podcast, a ministry of Grace Bible Church located in College Station, Texas. We desire to impact students who will impact the world for Christ. Hope you enjoy the talk and hang around for more after. Grab a seat, grab a seat. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. Howdy. Howdy. So glad you are here this morning. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be in a really big section. Um, Everyone that I've listened to that uh, teaches this section divides it into two or three sections, but we don't have that much time. And so we are going to cover 18 verses of probably the most theological, dense, intense, passages of the Bible. In fact, these 18 verses are some of my favorite ones. You've probably seen them emblazoned on coffee cups, on t-shirts. You probably wanted these verses read at your wedding. You'll see these verses everywhere. But here's why I'm going to take it in a big chunk, just to kind of set us off. Here's why I'm taking it in a big chunk. I want you to see Paul's flow of thought. I want you to see all the way from verse 1 through 18 how he is moving this community from, from conflict to unity through the process of humility. And I want us to see that process all the way through. I'm going to read a couple verses for us here to start. We're going to read 1 through 11. Pray for us, and then we will dive in. Y'all ready? I hope you're ready, because this, uh, this passage is amazing. It'll change your life. All right. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says this. So, or therefore, depending on your translation, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, Any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, which is yours, sorry, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's huge. If you have a pen, circle that. This attitude, this mindset is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in, the, in a human form, he humbled himself being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. If you can't read that with some energy, you're missing the energy of Paul. Can, can I get a little amen on the tail? Who, let me read one more time. One more time and we'll go get an amen. We'll time it correctly. It'll be perfect. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Yeah. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. What do you think about that? I think that's a great passage. I think this is a great section. I think this passage will really change how we view one another and change the community of the church if we embrace it. But I'll tell you this, every community has a culture that you walk into. I went to Austin about a week ago. This is your chance. That's what I'm talking about. That's perfect. Well-timed, okay? 
So I went to Austin about a week ago. I hadn't been there in a while. And, and immediately when I walked into Austin, there was a theme that you've probably heard about Austin. It's this, keep Austin weird. And they have, you know, in case you haven't been there recently, that they have. And I, and I walk around and I see all sorts of colored hair, all sorts of piercings and tattoos. And, and you guys have piercings and tattoos, but this was new levels. Uh, it, was, it was new levels of piercing and tattoos. I just wasn't as accustomed to um, uh, as much. And, and uh, the people there were so unique. And I look at this and I'm like, I see this person and I'm like, are you from College Station? No, right? Like this person doesn't fit there. And then I came back here and I see some of you and you wear boots. I see a lot of you with boots. Like you need to whoop a little louder than that. I see some of you with your boots. Yeah. I see some of you that, that, that have like a cowboy flavor to you. Like you would embrace that mantra, right? Little belt. Okay. I see some of you that, that whoop. Okay. And I look at that culture and I'm like, I'm, I'm like, this is so unique. This is so different. When you walk into these cultures, there's these things that you expect from them. I mean, I don't know if you visited different colleges when you were coming out of high school. Um, maybe your parents wouldn't let you. They're like, son, there's only one place you're headed, right? Okay, so maybe you, didn't, you weren't able to. But if you actually visited different colleges, you saw different cultures. You saw the way that they interact, the way that they talked. And you came to this campus, right? And maybe you walked on a, on a recruiting visit and you're walking through campus and then suddenly you see people and they're like, howdy. And you're like, do people say that in Texas? This is, this is amazing. And they're just like, they're like, howdy. And other people, you know, other places are like, what's up? You know, whatever. Or maybe they just don't even look at you. They just kind of, but here, like there's this, com- this, this culture of niceness and embracing. It's actually really infectious when you land here. It's actually really great. And, and, and I think about that culture and I think about the cultures that are even subcultured within our communities. I mean, as soon as you get here, the first question people ask you is this, what are you involved in? And it's almost like they want to peg you to a board. They're like, what are you involved in? Like, I'm a sorority. Okay. Boom. There you are. Others of you like, no, I'm in a fraternity. Okay. Here you are. I'm in the core. Why are you not wearing khaki? You know, like I wear, like I, I don't even know how to fathom. Like, what, what are you? What clothes are you wearing? And so, like, there's these categories that we put everyone in, and there's there's cultures that we expect those categories to embrace. I mean, everyone's going to be nice. Everyone's going to say howdy. You're going to get those things, but there's other categories within those cultures that you expect people to embrace and embody. You expect a core guy to act like this. You expect a sorority girl to act like this. You expect a fraternity guy to act like this. You expect someone in other leadership organizations to act like this. And, and I see that, and we kind of peg people for right or for wrong. We do. And the question is this. What is the Christian community supposed to be like? What, what, is, what is the foundational value? If you were to ask the question, what should the Christian community look like? What is that foundational value? What should we be about? And Jesus said, the world will know you're my disciples by one characteristic, one thing. The way you do this, the way you love one another, the way you care for one another, the world will know that you're mine by the way you love one another. And and that love isn't just, I think you're great. There's There's an underlying characteristic to that love, and it's this. It's a love that humbly serves. It's a love that looks to the needs of others and lowers yourself to meet those needs. It, it allows yourself to humbly serve and care for one another. That's the type of love that the Christian community should embody. But the challenge is this. The Christian community that Paul is writing to in Philippians doesn't embody that. There's conflict. 
If you read in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, you see two women, Eudia and Syntyche, that are having a tiff, right? How would you like to be immortalized in the Bible based on a conflict that you have? Like, I, that would be rough, right? Hey, help these women to, like, forever, throughout history. Oh, we're going to go to heaven, right? And we'll see them be like, hey, y'all doing better now? I mean, like, what, what's... What's going on? Like, so they are known by this tiff that they have. And what Paul is saying to this community is, look, I want you to overcome the conflict that's, that's hurting the community. I want you to move past this. And there's a way that I, I think if you embody, you will move past. And it's this, if you embrace humility, if you become humble people, you can move past the things that divide you. And the same is true in your community. There's only one constant across all of us in this room, and it's this. Conflict is coming if it hasn't already. So you have roommates. Anyone have any conflict with roommates this semester? No, we love Jesus, and so we're perfect, you know? <laughs> Others of you are like, yeah, right now, uh, like we talk about it, right? So if you live with people, you will have conflict. You had brothers and sisters growing up, and it was not a peaceful coexistence, right? You, you fought each other, right? And the same is true with your roommates. You're like, I can't wait to get rid of my brother or sister and then go to college. We'll have a peaceful other person to live with. And you found that wasn't easy. You have conflict within that community, but not only that with your significant other, right? Some of you are dating. <laughs> ha. <laughs> Aspiring to date. I don't know. Like some of you are in relationships and, and just know when you're in that relationship, you're just like, oh man, I just can't wait to be married because then we'll just love each other and hold hands and skip through the fields, like singing songs. Let's be a, a soundtrack of our love booming. This table host, this is your chance to laugh, right? Like that's, that's not reality. As soon as you bring two sinners together, inevitably there will come conflict when you will marry a sinner. I don't know if you know this, but whoever you think is cute also has this dark side, right? And you'll, you'll get to know them and you'll have conflict and you'll, there'll be silly conflicts. Like, are we spending too much time together? Are we not spending enough time together? Are we guarding one another's heart? Is there too much guarding of hearts? I have no idea what you're thinking, right? So what, what is going on? And there's all sorts of conflicts relationally that you will walk in through, but not only that with your parents, right? Right now, you are walking through conflict probably with your parents at some level. They're like, when are you graduating? What is my money going to? What is your degree? Will that make money? Like there's all of these questions they're asking you. And so you're going, mom, I'm gonna do this. And, you, and there's plans this summer, you're planning. You're like, mom, I wanna backpack across Europe for Jesus. And, <laughs> and your mom's like, you, don't, you need a job. Like, I don't know what you're saying. And so you're walking through that conflict. But, or <laughs> there's conflict in the church, right? You've been in a small group and there's about five people that you love. And there's like two or three others that are also in the group, you know? And, uh, and some weeks they don't come and you're like, oh gosh, thank you. And other times they're there and you're like, oh my God, you know? And some of you are in Christian organizations, right? Fraternities, sororities, Christian organization groups. And you're like, okay, they all love Jesus. I'm glad he loves them because, because I've had a rough time engaging with that person. And so the only norm I will tell you is this, you will have conflict in the communities you are involved in. The real question is this, how do we get over it? And I'll tell you, the answer is humility. But here's what's interesting. Humility has got a lot of a play right now. Humility is actually really popular right now. I read one article in um, an entrepreneur art magazine, and it says this, it turns out humility offers a competitive advantage. 
right? So people that are entrepreneurs are saying, humble people have a competitive advantage. And they say this, according to a study of the University of Washington, Foster Business School, humble people tend to make the most effective leaders, that's right, the most, and are more likely to be high performers in both individual and team settings, according to associate professor Michael Johnson. Well done, Michael Johnson. You know, you found this thing. Harvard Review says the same thing. The Harvard Review article says this. Many of us have seen evidence that the, of its opposite, of pride. Humility inspires loyalty, helps to build and sustain cohesive, productive teams and work, uh, at work, and decreases turnover. If you have humble leaders, you are more likely to, to sustain your employees. They want to be part of the program. And so leadership journals, leadership magazines are saying, look, if you can put humble, you can sprinkle that, in, sprinkle that into your leadership, you will be a better leader. And so they're asking the questions, okay, how do we add like humility to the training process of business leaders? And there's, there's, it's, it's difficult. It's challenging because it's difficult to manufacture humility. Have you ever tried? Ben Franklin did. Ben Franklin, one of our former presidents, uh, he made a list of virtues that, that, were, that he wanted to aspire to, right? Oh, that's funny, he was a president. Okay. He uh, made a list of, of, uh, of, of virtues he wanted to aspire to. And he says, my list continued uh, but at first 12, but a Quaker friend of mine kindly informed me that I was generally thought proud and that my pride showed itself frequently in conversation that I was not content with being in the right when discussing any point, but was overbearing and rather insolent, of which he convinced me by mentioning several instances. <laughs> I love this conversation. He's like, I had a Quaker friend tell me that I have pride. And he's like, I don't think so. And then he listed them off. Yeah, hey, remember when we were talking to G Jimmy the other day? Like, you were a jerk face. And remember when we talked to this and Ben's like, he made a point. And so Benjamin Franklin went on this journey. I will try to put humility into my personality and I'll make it one of my virtues. One of my 12, this will be number 13. And so luckily, hopefully I'll hit number 13 at some point, right? And so he tried to be humble. And here's what he discovered. I want you to, to see this. Sorry, I got my promoter right here. He wrote this at the end of his time. He says, in reality... There's perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Disguise it, struggle with it, beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases. It's still alive and will every now and then peep out and show itself. You will see it. Perhaps often in this history, for even if I could conceive that I'd completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. Benjamin Franklin says, I tried to add this thing to my repertoire and what I've found is that pride always sneaks up even in the midst of my humility. And here's what Paul says, I've got the answer for you. I've got the solution of how you and I can become humble people. The world sees that this is a value. Teams thrive in humble environments. People want humble leaders. You can't just shove it into your personality profile, but it can be grown. And Paul gives you the tools in which to grow it. There's something you have to see, something you have to think, and a commitment to grow that you have to embrace. There's something you have to see. There's some, a change in the way that you think and a shift to continue to grow. So Paul lays it out this way, starting in chapter two, verse one, he says this. You first need a sight shift. He says this, 
So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, he lists out all of these qualities, and the point is simply this. You have to shift the way that you see the world. He asks them this, not do you need to do something different. He says this, what have you received? And he says to the Philippians that are in this church, is there any encouragement in Christ? They're asking this question. Have you ever been encouraged? Has anyone ever been nice to you? And it's difficult in the, most of, in the midst of conflict to actually think about that. Have I ever been encouraged by this person? Is there any comfort from love? Has anyone shown you love? If you think about God and his gift of Jesus, is there any love that comes to you? Is there any participation in the spirit? Is there any, is there any spiritual growth? Is there anything that's pulling you together by, by the hand of God? Is there any affection, any sympathy? And I love his de- description. It's like, is there any? Is there any? And I mean, it's almost like he's talking to little kids, Right? I remember uh, sometimes I correct my kids, sometimes. I often correct my kids. And there's always that moment, and, and they always move to the never, right? They're like, I never get anything. So this past weekend, just one example. This past weekend, um, Micah did not get any donuts because he went to a birthday party in which they had cake and a bunch of other things, and he was playing a soccer game, so he didn't get any donuts. And after the soccer game, the, the parents gave him like a goodie basket, like a goodie thing of like treats and snacks and all sorts of things. And then it came to be mentioned that Micah didn't get a donut. He was destroyed, right? Like he's like on the ground, like, I can't believe I didn't get any donuts. And I'm like, I'm like, dude, you got ice cream cake and that whole goodie bag. Your brothers and sisters got nothing. And he's like, I just am a victim. And I'm like, Does daddy love you? No, no. Does mama, have we ever loved you? Has there ever been a moment in your life when we've loved you? And so finally we move past it, but that's what Paul's doing. He's just like, look, the community is actually beneficial to you. Is there any of this that you've received? Then make my joy complete. Then, then make me a little bit happy. And how? By being of the same mind, Right? maintaining the same love, being unified together. I want you to do two things. I want you to first see what you've received. I want you to look out there and see that you've been given great gifts by God, and you have. You've got a God who loves you, that that died for you. We're gonna get to that in a little bit, but you've received so much from God. See what you have received. And secondly, to move forward, to see the people that you need. See, here's what happens in conflict. Here's what always happens. People are the obstacle, not the solution. People are the problem, not the solution. And you see this in marriage all the time. We'll snapshot for you. In marriage, what ends up happening is that when two people cannot find agreement, they're living in conflict, eventually they turn that to one another and they see one another as the problem. And then they can't even move past the conflict because they're like, this person isn't helping me. This person is the problem. Instead of saying, this person is what's needed to bring the solution. I need this person alongside of me. In every one of your conflicts, here's what ends up happening. We see people as the problem, not the goal. 
We see people as the obstacle, not the goal. What Paul is saying in this moment is, look, have you received any love from the God and any love for people? Then look at them. You need them. They're not the obstacle for what God is doing in the world. They are actually the pathway. They are, they are the way that God is going to do great things. But you've got to see them. You see this in the movie, the first Avengers movie, right? Fans, first Avengers movie? You've got to go back to like junior high to remember it or whatever. In the first Avengers movie, right, you've got all these guys with this tremendous talent, and they're trying to get Loki, the bad guy. And Iron Man, and Th- Iron Man doesn't like the way Thor is going about it. And he's got his, like, weird accent, you know, and Tony Stark makes fun of him. He's like, are we in some weird Shakespearean play? What are you saying? He's like, you don't know, Earth creature. You know, like, it's just a weird deal. And they start beating each other up and start fighting in a moment, Captain America tries to step in. He goes, look, guys, we need all of you. If we're going to beat great obstacles, we need everyone to be on the same team. We can't just partition off, even though we have our own movies. Like, we can't just partition off. We need everyone to come together to do something great. See, you need the best of every person if the church of Jesus Christ is going to do everything that God wants us to do. First, you've got to shift your sight. This roommate isn't the problem. This parent isn't the problem. I need this person so that we can do everything God intended us to do. I got to shift my sight, but not just shift my sight. I got to shift my mind. He says it this way in verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look after his own interests, but also of the interests of others. He says, I want you to do this. I want you first to shift your mind by evaluating your mindset. I want you to evaluate your motives. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition, ambition or empty conceit. Selfish ambition is just selfish motives. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this so that I win or empty conceit. Another way to say it is, is vain boasting. It's boasting in something that's completely empty. He says, I want you first to evaluate your motives as you're interacting with this person. Are you, as you interact with them, is this about you or is this about them? Is this about what you can gain or is this about helping them become a better person or is this in their best interest? And so I'd ask, I would encourage you to ask yourself some questions. When you're in a conflict with someone, ask yourself this question. Why am I angry at this person? Is it because I want to control them? is because I think my feelings are more important than theirs? Or if you're talking bad about this person, I want you to ask this question. Why am I talking bad about this person? Is it because the spotlight isn't on me? And is my talking actually helping? He says, I want you to do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but instead, I want you to count others as more significant than yourselves. Would you think about that for a moment? Imagine if you walked into your roommate conflict and said, your desires are more important than mine. What if you walked into your conflict with your parents and said, what you want is more important than what I want in this conflict. Imagine your conflict with your marriage, table hosts. I'm sure you're perfect, but imagine some mythical moment when you're conflicting. Imagine if you said, what you want is more important than what I want want. How would that change the dynamics? 
How do your motives walking into it completely shift? And I'll tell you what, it shifts everything. He says, don't look after your own interests, but also to the interest of others. There's a motto that came out several years ago and it's called, uh, I am second, right? Anyone know this? Pine Cove has a similar version. Anyone from Pine Cove actually give it? What is it? What is it? Oh, sorry. I'm third, right? And so, oh man. So what, give me the Pine Cove one real quick. God first. Sorry, Canacuck. Oh, sorry. Canacuck one. What, what's the Canacuck one? I'm second, others, I'm God first, others second, I'm third, okay? Uh, we can give it 10th, right? No, I'm just kidding. Um, but what, what's interesting, I love, I love that idea of saying, I need to think about myself, not first. And I would just, I would even change that a little bit to this, you first. Like, I'm not even gonna put me, I in the mix. You first. What would, what would you like? What are you thinking? And I love that he says, don't merely consider your own interest. But because sometimes you do have to consider your own interest. But just add to that consideration the interest of others. How is this person thinking about this moment? Am, am I, are my motives pure walking in, or am I only considering what's best for me? And then secondly, he says, evaluate your own motives. But then he says this, I want you to embrace the mind of Christ. You know, what's interesting about humble people, truly humble people, is that they don't spend much time thinking about themselves. They always think about others first. William Wilberforce was one of the, an amazing figure who helped abolish, bring about the abolition of slave trade in starting in England. And he, he was a tremendous figure. He'd been in um, public service since he was like 21 years old. He had been there a very long time. And he began moving to try to bring reconciliation in this way, to abolish slavery and move things forward. And he had done great things all across in his political life. And then one person who would talk to him, a guy named the Duke of Wellington, said this, you have made me forget that you are a great man by seeming to forget it yourself. He had accomplished all of these things, but as he interacted with the Duke of Wellington, he was only concerned about him. In every one of their dialogues, every one of their conversations, he's just asking him about him. Do you know anyone like that? That, that you want to ask about them, but they won't even let you. They're just continuing to ask you about you. And you're like, oh, well, let me tell you about me. You know, you just, it's, it's an amazing environment. When you talk to them, they're so interested in you. And he says, you seem to forgot how great you are. That's true humility. You don't think about yourself. You, you're pushing yourself to think about others. And really that is the mind of Christ. He says this in verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See that? You can have this mindset. Like you can have this shift in mind. You can embrace this mind shift. It is yours in Christ. And he describes what Jesus did. He says, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And what that means is that he couldn't reach equality with God. It means he was equal with God. He was eternally co-equal with the Father. In Isaiah 6, where it says that there's angels worshiping, saying, holy, holy, are you God? Jesus was receiving that. When there's moments all throughout scripture in creation and, and everything, Jesus was at the beginning. He was eternally co-equal with God, but he didn't consider equality with God. Something to be grasped, meaning to be hold, held tight 
or leveraged for his own benefit. But instead, he took on humanity. He emptied himself. The word that we get a theological term, kenosis. And it doesn't mean that he became less God. It means he didn't grasp those God qualities. And you see this all throughout his life. He didn't hold on to his Godness. He was born to a peasant woman, right? In a manger, in a barn. He lived in, grew up in Nazareth, right? Which was like a dumpy rural hick town in the middle of nowhere. He got made fun of it for later, later on in his life. He, he was mocked most of his life because they're like, uh, we, know, we know who our parents are. You don't know who your daddy is. He left authority, glory, the throne, and took on humanity. Not just like any humanity. Like he could have been like, I'll just be like, I don't know, a diplomat or a king. It'll be sweet, you know? He took on the lowest of the low humanity. A carpenter for a dad, a questionable situation with his mom, and grew up in that environment. He left glory and took on humble humanity. He didn't account equality, but got something to hold on to, but he left privilege and perfection. He left glory and took on lowly humanity. You know what true humility looks like? It means you step off the throne of your life. And we all have something that's a throne for us. And usually for us, it's either a position or possession. There's some throne that we have, and it may be a position, like you just went out for that organization and you became president or you became dictator. I don't know what role that you had. You got some position of honor and you think that's awesome. And it is awesome. But some of you leverage that. Like, please salute me as I walk to you, you know, like in the core, I know you have to, but some of you are just like, please honor the position, right? And you just hold it above. I remember one comedian, he said it this way. He went and worked with his brother at Burger King. And uh, he goes, my brother literally thought he was the Burger King. You know, he's a manager there. And he just like was oppressive to his little brother, right? He just used his position to push people down. William Wallace in the great movie Braveheart. <sighs> Came out like the year you're born. Come on, people. Classic. There's this moment he's talking with a leader of of England, he says this, the difference between us is this, you think people of this country exist to provide you with a position. I think your position exists to provide these people with freedom. And I go to make sure they have it, you know, like in his <laughs> accent, right? And so for all of us, we got either positions or possessions. It's a car, it's a house, it's a future that, that if I have this, then I'm worthwhile, or, or it's this position that I have. And Jesus says, yeah, I gave up everything. I had all of it. True humility is to say, I'm going to go low. I'm going to enter into humanity in the lowest moment. And not only did he enter into humanity lowly, he did this in verse eight. And being found in the the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Not only did he not hold on, he obeyed through the hurt. Think about that. He obeyed God through the hurt. I think oftentimes we obey God as long as it's comfortable. But Jesus said, true humility. Paul says, you want a picture of true humility? It's this, you obey and you go all the way through the pain point. You give past it benefiting you till it hurts. Till it hurts. 
He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And you know the cross. It was excruciating. In fact, that's where we get the word excruciating from crucifixion. It was extremely painful. And I'll tell you what, whatever conflict you're in with your roommates, it hurts. It really hurts. And I'm not trying to minimize that. But whatever conflict you in, it hurts. And what Jesus says, look, if you want to have true humility, you leave your position, you leave your rights, and you obey God, even when it hurts. That means you move out in love. You try to preserve unity. And it's because Jesus did this that he was rewarded. It's because Jesus did this, he was rewarded. He said this, Paul says it this way. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus Christ, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's so interesting. This is what God rewards. What do you think God rewards? This, humility. In James, he says it this way. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Why is it that God so rewards humility? I I thought about that. I wrestled with that. Why is this quality such a big deal in the mind of God? And I thought about this. Think of the Trinity. God eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a loving, giving community. Can you imagine them bickering? Like, who's going to go down and save the people? Well, I'm not. You see them? They're crazy, right? Like, he doesn't do that. In this holy community that internally existed, they're always celebrating one another. Read through the Bible. Jesus is always honoring the Father and saying, look, it's better if I go because the Spirit's going to come and he's going to lead you in a, new, in a new way. When Jesus is being at, at the top of the mountain, God says, Peter, be quiet. This is my son. Listen to him. He's honored by the Father. Every part of the Trinity is in this loving dance, Tim Keller says, constantly lifting one another up. And you know why we're created? You know why God created us? He wasn't needy. He didn't need your love. He wasn't bored. Like you made his life complicated, right? Like just read through the Bible. He's just like, yeah, I'm sorry, I made this. Like I just, there's moments when he's just kind of frustrated. And then he says this, you are made because I love you. Because I love you. And I want you to experience the loving community that I've been living in forever. I want you to come into this place. And you know what breaks that loving community? Pride. You know what makes that loving community flourish? Humility. When we give one another, and that's what I'm rewarding, that's what I'm spotlighting, because when the community lowers themselves and considers one another as more important, leverages their lives so that others can thrive, that is the goal. That's a loving community, and that's the mind shift. I'll tell you what, it's yours in Christ. You can have that shift if you're in Christ. See, this is why Benjamin Franklin couldn't make the shift he's not in Christ. This is why lots of people can have great effort to try to live better, but you can't embrace this type of humility apart from the work of Christ and his Holy Spirit in you. But if you put your faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, this, this humble, loving environment can start to birth its way in you. And the last part that he says, and it can be worked out through you but you've got to grow. He says this way in verse 12. He says, therefore, my beloved, 
as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. And he says this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He said, God is at work in you to change what you will and to change how you work. The word work is this. The first phrase of work is work out your salvation, meaning to put yourself, to bear it down to the ground, to overcome, and it's described of making farming implements. The first work is this, to bear down, grit your teeth, and do it. And then he gives you a positive motivation because God works within you. It's the word ergomai. It's what we get the word energize because God is working in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So you bear down. So part of it depends on you. Part of it means you, you take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It means you put in real effort from yourself. And then he says, you've got a cheat sheet because God's working in you. I'm uh, listening to an autobiography on Audible. So shameless promotion, I guess. Uh-huh. I get no money. Um, but it's, but it's uh, by a guy named Richard Branson and he uh, created virgin stuff, you know, so virgin planes, music, all sorts of stuff. And uh, he talks about a moment when he was going on a bike race with his son. And so they're racing to the top of this ridiculously huge mountain. And Richard was in his 60s at the time. And his son was like young and fit. And so his son's like riding to the top of the mountain thinking he's just going to destroy his dad. Like, dad, you know, don't worry about it, man. You can old man your way up it. You know, it'll be good. And, and then suddenly he lets his son get ahead. And then he starts passing all of these people up this race and beats his son to the top of the mountain by like 10 minutes, like almost breaking the record to get to the top of the mountain. And his son's like, dad, how did this happen? He goes over to the bike and lifts up the seat and there's a, <laughs> there's a battery <laughs> hooked up to a motor <laughs> that's motoring his way up, to, up the mountain. And, he's like, and his son's like, I hate you. That's so smart. You know, that's so you, dad. That's what we have in Christ. We got something changing our will. We got a cheat sheet. We got energy coming into us that's maximizing every effort. God is working in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. God is working in you. If you're in Christ, God is working these pieces in you. And so we submit our life. We know that God is energizing us. And then he's gonna give you a practical place to try it out. People. People. He's gonna give you roommates you don't like to practice humility. He's gonna give you parents you disagree with to practice humility. He's gonna give you a frustrating uh, group for a group project so that you can practice humility. God is gonna give you ample opportunity to either move in frustration or move in humility. And in verse 14 says it, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you'll shine as lights to the world. You know why he sticks you in those communities? Because you'll shine as lights. If you look at the black sky, what you don't look at and focus on is what's black. You focus on what shines. In my, in my backyard, um, we, we have like a little play set and um, I have a almost two-year-old daughter. We push like on the swing. She's like, swing, swing. And so we go over and push her on the swing. And sometimes it's getting darker. And, and from the swing, you can just see the moon come over the side of the house. And every time she goes, moon, 
She never says, black sky, you know, black darkness. Like she notices what's different. That's what the Christian community is supposed to be. How do we mark the world? You shine brightly. You shine as stars and against a dark backdrop. The world needs people to embody this type of humility, to give of themselves, to sacrifice themselves, and it will stand out against the, back, the black backdrop of life. So he gives you practical instructions. Love them. Serve them. Humble yourself. It will make a dramatic difference in the community. And I just want you to think about this for a moment. I want you to play this out. Can you imagine a team that does this? That genuinely considers one another's interests as higher than themselves. Can you imagine being on that team? How fun would that be? You knew that everyone is giving their best so that everyone can succeed. It's called the San Antonio Spurs, people, right? So imagine that, right? Imagine a band, right? Where every instrument is worried about the whole and everyone having time to move something forward. Imagine group projects like that, where everyone does their part. You're like, Kevin, you're speaking of heaven. I don't even know the mythical language that you're doing. Imagine this church like that. Imagine, can we take a moment? Imagine if every student that walked into this room wasn't just another person filling a seat, but they were someone that you could reach out to and you could take a genuine interest in. Imagine if every time you walked through this room, you didn't see people to move around, you saw people that were looking to you and saying, hey, how was your day? How have you been? Imagine if every person you interacted was a person to touch, a person to encourage, a person that needed you to speak a word of life to. Imagine if every person sitting in every seat in this room was receiving your love. That you said, hey, what do you need? Can I help get you a cup of coffee? And that's just like the normal thing that we do at Grace. Can you imagine the new person that just happened to come here the first time and said, I love that every time I come in here, I feel like someone's reaching out to give me a pat, to touch me, to be concerned in a positive, non-awkward way, you know? <laughs> imagine if we saw our place as a place to humbly serve and love every person. Imagine that. Imagine if we could be that community. Imagine if, if we were known as people that humbly loved and served everyone. I think we can do it. I think this mindset is ours in Christ. And I think genuinely, if we put on this mindset, if we shift our sight, if we shift our mind, and we commit to grow, the world will be changed by the simple lives we live. I pray that we can be those people. We pray for us. Lord, thank you for this morning. And thank you, Jesus, that you lift, left glory and took on humanity. <laughs> that you left stature and prominence and stepped in for us. And Lord, I pray that we might take the mind of Christ, that we would see these people around us as 
as genuine people that we need to love and care because we need them. And Lord, that you would shift the way we think about our roommates, our interactions that we have, and that we would commit to grow, knowing that you are at work in us to will and to work your works in this place. I pray that this community would clothe ourselves in humility in Christ, and we can only do it through your power. So we ask you to come, change our hearts. It's in your holy and precious name we pray, amen. Hey, why don't you turn your tables and have some good discussion.